Everybody doing? Everybody okay? How long did we decide we'd go? The, the babysitters asked today. So we're not going the 17th. Vic? Will you just walk over there and tell the nice lady in the nursery that we're not going the 17th? And tell Tammy we're not going the 17th? Can you remember all that? Okay. No, it wasn't a criticism. I know I'm giving you a lot all at once. Um, everybody okay? Everybody had a good Thanksgiving? All right, good. Um, what did we talk about last time? It wasn't me, and I wasn't here. So what did you? Oh, yes, that's right. Everybody get a ring who's here? All right, I think we have four left. If somebody wants to know, you didn't get one? Uh-oh. Okay, you three, I think, can have one, okay? we gotta, we got to get it to you after this at some point. Um, yeah, fill it, yeah uh, mind the gap sort of stuff. Um, this is the continuation, I believe, of what Pastor Bruzek did. So the last two, there are two more um, brief sections from this desert mother. So where's the vicar? I know. It was my fault, Jan. I know. You know you have great administrative experience, and you know that was bad administration right there. I was going to hand something. Out. Thank you very much. I'll give you half. There you go. I don't know. <laughs> um, so two more sections here. If you had to, in a word or two, describe the Christian life, how would you describe it? Okay. I know, I know. Well, good. Give me what you got. Uh, good. No, if you had to describe, yeah, okay, good, faithful, that's good. Good. I got it all handed out, buddy. You didn't really, did you? Uh, yes, I know. I just believe what people tell me. What did you say? Hard work? Okay. Yeah. Yep, what else? I was actually waiting for you to say, what is it we're talking about again? <laughs> yes, right. Yes, I said, give me a word or two that describes the, the life of a Christian. I'm not talking ideal or not. I'm talking just what's your experience of the Christian life? Charitable, okay. Charitable. Okay. What else? Starting to bring a tear to my eye. Family. What else? Good. This is all in theory, right? This doesn't really actually happen. <laughs> Kidding. Compassion. Okay, what else? Joy. Good. Very interesting. Hope. Order. Anything else? Good Lutheran answer. Oh, you said it? All right. I, all I heard was hard work. And actually, here's why I forgot it. I heard hard work, and I thought hard rock. And then I thought, 
I was in Venice and there was a Hard Rock Cafe. That was the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, it's moral. Uh-oh, more than two words. Okay, peace. This is very interesting. The, uh, the, pur the purpose, I thought you'd give me very different answers. Um, well, I'm going to in just a second. <laughs> Jump into conclusions. Okay, no, uh, partly... Um, and this will come up in the reading I just gave you. And actually, most of these, here's the funny thing, most of these actually fit into what I would say. The Christian life for the early church, and so the context in which this is being written, and for us as well, was in the context of a journey. That's how they describe the Christian life. So if you said to a church father, give me one word that describes the Christian life, they would say, it's a journey. Now, particularly, they would say it's a journey that's modeled after the life of Jesus. So the life of Jesus is itself a journey. So he comes, I'm going to give you this, and I'm going to have you fill in the blanks for us. He comes from heaven. And what are some big points along the way in Christ's journey, the journey of his life? Uh, start before that. Start before that. Uh, good, so creation, yeah. I was actually thinking enunciation, but creation is good. Conception, his birth, his life. Yeah, good. So that would be uh, that would be right about in here. Yeah. So after birth, during life. Yes, he did. When he was 12, that's a great story where they can't keep track of him, right? Creation, enunciation, conception, birth, baptism, life, death, burial, resurrection. Yeah. And in the ascension, he goes back to heaven. So Christ's life, here's a big Christ, is a journey from heaven, so creation. Let's take creation out because that's actually up here while he's in heaven. Annunciation, conception, birth, baptism, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension to heaven. Now, if you had to fill in the gaps for human beings, what would you say? This is very important for the early church. Where does your journey begin? Uh, start before that. You actually have a journey before that. Yes. Even before that. Think of, think of now um, person as a big person P, not you individually, but humanity. Where does humanity's journey start? In Eden, right? From Eden. And what happens then? Eden, you have what? Fall, good. Then what? Uh, you have, well, uh, good, you have promise. Well, then what? You have sin. I mean, this whole life is a life of sin. Blood, good. Now, think about yourself individually. You will die. As we say at every funeral, you'll be buried with Christ. 
Then what happens? You'll be raised. You'll have new life. And you'll go back where? Back to Eden. Okay? So, for the early church, they saw life as a journey that was modeled after the journey that Christ's life took. And this is especially apparent um, as people were made new Christians at what's the big service of the year? If you were made a Christian, what was the service? The Easter Vigil, yeah. So you see this journey um, even in the Easter Vigil liturgy uh, where people would start. You remember what happened at the Easter Vigil? I think I've told you this before, but it's kind of fun to remember. This is the baptistry. There was a big door here. Baptistry. Big door, and outside, what's up? I know markers are bad. Uh, outside, people would stand. What time of year is the Easter Vigil usually? Springtime, so is it cold? Yeah, even in Jerusalem, it's cold. And people would stand outside. Men would be segregated. Women would be segregated. Why? Because they would be baptized how? Naked. I, did I ever tell you a story about the high school kid who got baptized here about two years ago? This was great. One of my finer moments. Young high school kid comes through the catechumenate, and we find out he's never been baptized. Okay? So he says, Pastor, I've never been baptized. Great. We'll do the baptism at the Easter Vigil. So about a week before the Easter Vigil, he calls me and says, I need to talk to you. I said, okay, perfect. He comes in, sits down, sort of plops down like high school kids do, and says, uh, listen, my parents don't go to church. I don't know what to wear to my baptism. Very honest question, like, do I wear a shirt and tie? Do I? To which I said, with a very straight face, nothing. He just looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, well, we baptize you naked. No, it was like this. It was great. I then assumed the sloppy high school position, kind of like this. And he assumed the pastor I'm nervous position like this. <laughs> and we just sat there and looked at each other with a straight face for about 120 seconds. It was the longest two minutes of his entire life. So finally he starts to lean back. I said, oh, I'm just kidding. He did eventually get baptized uh, with a shirt and tie. But in the early church, that's how they did it. Completely naked, men on one side, women on the other side. Thank you very much. And uh, when they brought you in, you actually had an exorcism right away like they do right now in our liturgy. But it's interesting when you had your exorcism, what direction did you face? North, south, east, or west? No, you didn't face east because Jesus was coming from the east. What direction did you face? West. Because if you were in Jerusalem and you faced west, you were looking at Rome. Isn't that interesting? The devil was in Rome. And I don't mean the Catholic Church. That's not what I mean. This is before that. Okay? But it was always assumed that Rome was the place where Christians were killed. So when you were a Christian about to be baptized, you'd face west because that's where Rome was. You'd renounce the devil. They'd put some oil on you. They'd bring you into the baptistry, and you'd walk down three stairs. Why did you go down three stairs? Yeah, good trinity. What else? Yes, because in baptism, as St. Paul says, do you not know you have been buried with Christ three days into the tomb? Here's the flowing water. And then you'd come up again, three on the other side. One, two, three. Why? Because then you were resurrected. Instantly then, they poured oil over the entire person. Back in the early church, they didn't have Easter lilies. 
So when you walked through the church, what was the smell you first had? Not Easter lilies, but the oil of baptism. That was the sign of redemption. You'd go into the church, they'd put a white robe on you, and then you got your first Eucharist, and at your first Eucharist, and this is everybody, men, women, children, everybody got the Eucharist. You got bread, you got uh, water, you got uh, milk, you got honey, and you got wine. All of this was given to you at the Eucharist. Why? Well, bread and wine are easy, body and blood. Why did you get water? To remind you of your baptism. Why did you get milk and honey? It's the promised land. And what were the Israelites on? They were on a journey for 40 years. You walk in, you get milk and honey, and then you got the wine, you got body, and you got blood. Make sense? This is how they viewed the life of a Christian. Now, you have to keep all that in its proper context when you read the section from the Desert Mother. So look at your sheet. Number 25. She also said, here below, we are not exempt from temptations. Okay? Here below, we are not exempt from temptations. How, uh, let me ask you this. I don't want to know what your temptations are, but how many of you are aware of your temptations? Yeah. That's a good thing because there are lots of people in the world who aren't aware of their temptations, even good Christian people, right? They're not aware um, that sometimes they're even falling into temptation. So if you're aware of your temptations, that's very good. This is why Pastor Bruzek drew, you know, drew for you the gaps and you know the valleys, and here's where you've got to put a stop on things. If you're aware of your temptations, what can happen? You can stop it before it comes, right? I, when I think of temptation, this is what I think of. You know that Allstate commercial where the guy goes shaky, shaky, shaky on the tree branch? But there's also the one where he's out running and he says, I'm a hot babe. Out. You've seen this, right? And like they show the guy driving the car into the light pole. That's how I think of temptation, right? That guy shouldn't be looking at the woman. And if you see her out running, turn your head the other way, okay? But that's how it is. Some people don't even know it. What do they do? They turn their head and spiritually they run their soul right into the light post, right? So... Here below, we are not exempt from temptations, right? Because the devil is still around. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And who's he going to go after? Yeah, the Christian. This is the value of Luther. Luther understood more than anyone else, the life of a Christian is a life of, as he called it, tentatio, temptation. Um, there's, no, there's very little temptation for the non-Christian. Why? They've already been won. But there's utter temptation for the Christian. For scripture says, quote, may you who think that you stand take heed lest you fall. That's interesting. We sail on in darkness. Okay? We sail on in darkness. The psalmist calls our life a sea, and the sea is either full of rocks or very rough, or else it is calm. It almost sounds like the parable of the sower. Remember, some fell on rocky soil, some fell on, on you know, cement, and some fell on good soil. The psalmist calls our life a sea, and the sea is either, is this boring you? Okay, good. The vicar yawned during a funeral the other day, and Pastor Nelson said, everybody in the place could hear you yawning. <laughs> that is so good. What's that? No, that's okay. I didn't. Uh, no, no, no. I actually, I, I'm still trying to get back on track from Italy. So I took a Unisom last night, 
And uh, I took one the night before and slept solid for about eight hours. But three times, Emma came in. And she always comes to my side. And she goes, just keep doing this until I roll over. <laughs> and it sort of catches me. I don't know what I was dreaming about, but I was having a, I was solid asleep. And she just keeps doing this. And I go, she goes, I can't sleep. <laughs> I used to say, let's go back to bed. Now I'm like, get in. So she just gets into bed. Although when I rolled over, I realized that Claire was on one side. Abby was next to me. I was in the middle. And Emma was, I thought, why am I in the middle of the bed? Can't even move in here. So... The psalmist calls our life a sea, and the sea is either full of rocks. What happens if the sea is full of rocks? Yeah, like that, that, you're not, you're like that British submarine. I mean, the, only, the best submarine in the world, what happens to it? Goes on, goes on the ground. So all of these you know, military secrets that they didn't want to reveal about the submarine, guess what? Everybody and their brother could see it when they saw the submarine. Only the Brits. The psalmist calls our life a sea, and the sea is either full of rocks. It'll break you up, and it's painful. If, I mean, if you get hit by a rock, by rocks in a boat, you're going to survive, but it's a painful life trying to get back to land. Or it's very rough, always up and down, or else it's calm. We are like those who sail on a calm sea. And seculars, non-believers, are like those on a rough sea. We always set our course by the son of justice. Now, that's interesting because he says, she says in the very first line, we sail on in darkness okay we sail on in darkness but she says we always set our course by the son of justice advent is all about the coming of the light we always set our course by the son of justice but it can often happen that the secular is saved in tempest and darkness for he keeps watch as he ought while we go to the bottom through negligence Although we are on a calm sea because we have let go of the guidance of justice. Now, that's very interesting. You ever watch Deadliest Catch? You ever see when the captain goes down to sleep and he leaves you know, his second in command in charge? Usually it's when what happens on the sea? It's become fairly calm, at least for an hour or two. But if it's rough sea, who's always awake? The captain. Now, what, what is this spiritual mother saying about the Christian life? What's she saying? The secular, the non-believer, because they're always in rough waters, what are they always doing? They're always keeping watch. They're always keeping watch. What does the psalmist say? Keep watch. So she says, but Christians, because they sail on calm seas, they don't always do what? Keep watch. See how she's turned this whole thing on its head? What she says is, you Christians are great. You have calm seas. But guess what? Because the sea is calm, what don't you do? You don't keep watch. And if you don't keep watch, temptation will jump up and take you. This is interesting. The secular is saved. The unbeliever can be saved in tempest and darkness because he, keep, he keeps watch as he ought. I find that fascinating. Basically, she says, rejoice in the fact that you have calm seas, but learn to keep watch like the unbeliever. That makes sense? What do you, you have a reaction to that? Which parable? Yes. 
Exactly, exactly. Or even, um, I often think of the parable that's used in the last Sunday in the church here, which is the parable of the ten virgins. You know, who kept their lamps burning and kept watch? Right? Yeah? What don't you expect about the other one? Help us out now. Yes, right. Yeah, you remember in that text, I think I said this because I preached on that text. In the Greek, it says the shrewd manager acted wisely. He did two things. One, he acted, and two, he was wise. What's our problem sometimes? We're very wise. We don't always act, or we're very active people, but we don't act with a purpose, which means we don't act wisely. You know, I mean, think about, think about your life in the church. There are lots of people like this. There are lots of, we'd call these busybodies, right? And there are lots of people who are very bright. But until these two things come together, nothing can ever be accomplished. I shouldn't say nothing. The full, the full extent of what Christ wants to be accomplished can't be accomplished. So even the unbeliever acts wisely. Why? Because he keeps watch. Okay, so how do you keep watch? And then we'll talk about what, the, uh, what it's called when you don't keep watch. But how do you keep watch? What would be a way in which you'd keep watch? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about it this morning. I talked to, I talked to someone the other day who said, um, who said, you know, make sure you keep your prayer life up. And this person was a Catholic, actually. And I found it surprising because when you think of, at least this was my misconception when I was a kid, Lutherans are really good at saying their prayers, but not really good at going to the Eucharist. And Catholics are really good at going to the Eucharist, but not very good at saying their prayers. So I found it stunning that someone sort of that sacramental could say, say your prayers. Um, and I, I was reflecting on that actually this morning, that Lutherans need to do more of that. Prayer is not a replacement for the sacraments, but prayer is in addition to the sacraments. So no Lutheran can say, well, I read my Bible and say my prayers so I don't need to go to the Eucharist as often as I can. Not at all. But they also can't say I go to the Eucharist every day so I don't need to say my prayers. So it's a both and. It's a both and. Go ahead. Do you have something? Okay, no. I th exactly. Yeah. Why, let me, I mean, partly this is, now this is like all of us trying to get better. Why don't people spend time reading their Bibles? So, I mean, the obvious answer is they don't have time, or they don't think they have time. Could be, yeah, could be. I, but I, yeah. It, that's very interesting that you said that, because I think most people, that's not the reason they don't read the Bible. Most people think, most people don't go to Bible study because they think they can read it just as well as anybody else. Then they don't, exactly. Yeah, then they don't. That's the funny thing. They say, I can do this just as good as you can. And they say, well, do you read your Bible every day? Well, not really. But that's interesting you've said that because that, if you polled most people in the Lutheran church, that's not the answer they'd give. That I need to read my Bible because I need to do it. That's what the Lord's called me to do. And he gives me different venues in which to do that. Most people would say, I need to read my Bible because, geez. I don't need to listen to anybody else tell me what the Bible says. But why else do so people don't have time? They don't think they can do it. Why else? 
Once a week is enough. Good. Have you ever have you ever tried? Have you ever said to yourself, I mean, it's like you know, giving up drinking or giving up smoking. You say, okay, today I'm going to do it. And you open up your Bible and you're like, oh man, where do I start? Okay, uh, Genesis one. This is kind of boring because then you get to Genesis six and you know the Lord's like doing this to his creation and he's going to destroy it. And then you get to all the descendants and then you're like Abraham and Lot. They're separated and you get through chapter thirteen or fourteen and you say, man, this is so boring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You feel like, yeah, most people, yes. Most people feel like, what do I get on Sunday? I always hear usually a sermon on the gospel, which obviously, just just so you know, throughout the history of the church on Sundays, you always preached on the gospel, so that's the reason we do it. But you hear a sermon on the gospel, you usually hear the Bible study on something from St. Paul, because that's easy to teach a Bible study on. But people don't usually hear the Old Testament. So you open up Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. God forbid you make it all the way to Numbers or Deuteronomy, and you say, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Tell us then. We want to hear it. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Good. Good. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And it's helpful when, and sometimes they, they actually do this, it's helpful when someone has thought through that and said, there's an Old Testament reading, the New Testament reading, it's nice if it sort of interprets the Old Testament reading or gives you a fulfillment. It doesn't always do that because you have 365 days worth of readings but more like a lectionary than like a daily reading schedule. Do you see what I'm saying? Lectionary in the church is meant to interpret everything else. But I think you're right. Partly, you've got to find a way to do it. Okay, this is just, yeah, and this is just, this is the keeping watch part. So how do you keep watch? Read your Bible, find a way, and if you need advice, you know, find something that will help you. My, My advice is don't start at Genesis and try to read the whole thing. Very few people have the patience for that. I don't have the patience for that. Okay? And don't start at Matthew and read the whole thing. Yeah, Kirby. Yep. Right. I think that's right. The other thing is, and I don't take this as a criticism, because I think it's a criticism of, of pastors too. I don't think we know how to read the Bible. And by that I mean... I mean, how do we read the Bible? We open it up and just start reading. I don't mean we find the right book. What I mean is we don't even know what we're looking for. So, for instance, and this is something I find very helpful to think about. You know, Lutherans are big on you read the Bible literally, right? And so are your fundamentalist friends. That always gets sticky, though, when your fundamentalist friends say, I read the Bible literally, and then you say, okay, Jesus says this is my body. And they say, whoa, he couldn't mean that, (laughs) right? You're like... Hey, 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 you know, stick to your own principles. But Lutherans, of course, read the Bible literally. But within that, there are so many things you have to be looking for. And I want to I give you this just so you'd be thinking about this and also so you see some logic to what we're trying to do. There are different ways. I gave this to the Joy Group on Wednesday. I don't think any of them. Uh, I don't, no, I was going to say I don't think they were paying attention because it was the first thing. They hadn't had their coffee yet. 
historical. You are a nice woman. You want to do this section? Okay. She would, actually. Next week is the quiz. What does this T-H-I-S mean? Good Lutheran question. When you read the Bible, <coughs> there are different things you have to look for. And I think this is part of our trouble. We read, for instance, the begets. And what happens? You get to the begets and you say, what the heck is this trying to say? And you can never quite figure it out because you're just reading beget, 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 beget. Yeah. Okay, good. Yes, you get it. Think about our catechumens who have not been to church in 10 years. They don't get it. And what happens if you don't get it? You get bored and you just skip, and eventually you're going to skip all the way to Revelation, and then you're going to skip all the way to the back cover, and you're going to put it back on your shelf and say, wasn't that fun? Right? So when you read the Bible, you have to look for a couple things. One is, what are the words the Bible uses? When we do the Psalms with the Joy Group, this is very important. I'll give you an example. Psalm 1. What's the very first word in Psalm 1? Blessed. Now, that's important. Okay? That's very important. In fact, you can't read the rest of the psalm without stopping at the very first word. Why is that important? In the New Testament, where do you see the most blessed used? The Sermon on the Mount. And then you read Psalm 1 again, and you say, blessed, that's interesting. That's the same word Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, look at it. It says, blessed is the man. It's a single man who is a man's man. That might be who? Jesus. So you have to stop at the words. You have to look and see, what are the words saying as I read through this? Then the logic. What's the whole sentence trying to say? So go verse by verse. What does this say? What does this mean? And the rhetoric, which is basically, how winsomely did the person say it? Winsome. Okay? So for instance, some, some parables are more winsome than others. The prodigal son, why is it so popular? Because everybody finds their place in the in the story. The parable of the unjust steward, nobody understands why, because nobody wants to find their place in that story. Who wants to be the unjust steward, right? So partly, how winsome is it said? Then you also have to look and say, now what time is this written? Is this written in 50 BC or 200 BC, or is this written in 90 AD? That makes a difference. If you're reading the New Testament, that makes a difference. Also, what's the culture? So I tell you all the time about the prodigal son and how when the father ran down the hill to meet his son, if you were living in the first century, you would see that as something to be ashamed by. Remember Aristotle, noble men don't run. Unless you know that, you don't see the significance of the father running. And finally, what's the religion? Who are they worshiping? Obviously the Christ. And then finally, and this is the question we miss, what does this mean to me? So you read the begets. The ultimate question you have to ask is, what does that all mean to me? If the begets are just the begets, why read it? Unless you can say, that begetting continues, and I find my place at the end of the chain. Make sense? So this is ultimately, where's my spot? These are all things you have to keep in mind as you read the Bible. Okay. Make sense? So partly, 
this make sense, Jan? Okay, good. So partly, um, manning the ship and keeping watch is to read your Bible, but not just to start at Genesis. Come up with a plan, and then when you start, keep all these things in mind. The Lord is trying to tell me different things, and ultimately, everything points back to the person of Christ. Ultimately, yes. I know um, one of the editors for that book. My name is very small on the last page. It's like this. You can't even see it. So much for CPH. Uh, oh, that just went on the radio. <laughs> I mean, I love CPH. <laughs> Daily Treasury of Prayer. No, it's like 30 pounds. I know you do. Concordia Publishing House, it came out with the new hymnal. It looks like it's about the size of your Bible right there. It's very nice, though. What it gives you are, it gives you three readings, right? A reading from the Fathers or Luther, and it gives you some prayers or a prayer. Perfect. Yeah, eventually. It, it runs you through. It, it does it not by the Bible, but by the church year. Yeah, exactly. It, you might still get that. But it, it uses a church calendar, which is a helpful plan to have. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. That's great. No, I would I would recommend it. It is a very it's a very good resource and it's it is uniquely Lutheran, which is nice. It gives you some some good bits from Luther. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's like, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Look at number 26 there. This is where it gets a little more sticky, at least for me as I read it. So you've got this notion of sort of a deceptive calm. Yeah, the, the world may be calm, but you know that when the world's calm, um, you know, someone is sort of running free course and you can't quite see him. You ever said to yourself, man, my family's doing pretty well right now. Life's pretty good. I'm not arguing with my husband too much. Everything's okay, and then what happens? Boom, out of nowhere, everything's turned upside down. So it's sort of that deceptive calm. If you don't tend to the calmness, it doesn't mean you create chaos, but it means you rejoice in the calmness and ask for preservation in the calmness. If you don't tend that, everything falls apart again. So now number 26. She also said, there is grief that is useful, and there is grief that is destructive. Now, how would you describe grief? We often think of it in the context of death, but how would you describe it? Yeah, you grieve, you grieve loss, right? It's your reaction to a loss. It can be anything. Yeah, but it's usually a reaction to a loss. That's right. 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 How else would you describe grief? I think all those things are helpful. It's a washing. It's a fresh start. But it also means you've encountered emotions related to loss. It can be very painful. How else? Sadness, yeah. Sadness is a, is a big part of it. Sadness is part of your reaction to loss. So there is a grief that is useful. That's good. And there is a grief that is destructive. 
The first sort, the useful kind, consists in weeping over one's own faults and weeping over the weakness of one's neighbors in order not to destroy one's purpose and attach oneself to the perfect good. I don't know if you've thought about that. Have you ever, I mean, it's easy, maybe it's easier for us to weep over our own weaknesses. Have you ever sort of wept, maybe not physically, but emotionally or spiritually over the weakness of your neighbors? I mean, that, that's a, I, sometimes I ask myself this question, how can Christians act that way? You ever ask yourself that question? How can they act that way? And it's not like you're angry. Sometimes it, it is anger, like I can't believe Christians would act that way. But sometimes it's, how has the world come to this? Exactly. How can, are we, or I often say to myself, can we really be that bad? Or is there really that little hope? Okay? But there is also a grief that comes from the enemy, full of mockery, which some call axity, or you've heard it, acidia, axity. The spirit must be cast out mainly by prayer and psalmody. Now, axity, just so you know, I know it's a, it's a, it's, it, it, uh, it sort of emerges in the Middle Ages, especially among monks. Now, these women are in the early church, so obviously they use the term too. It's being sort of... Um, re-engaged today among postmoderns, which is interesting, um, and among, I don't want to call them mystics, because that's the wrong term, but people who are deeply connected to their own spiritual lives, so spiritual mothers and fathers. But um, uh, the word you would know is apathy. How would you describe apathy? Yeah, it may even be less than that, but you're right. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, how? Who cares? Yep. How else? I think it's more than that because you can be you can be lazy and care. There are lots of people who care that are just lazy. <laughs> Unattached. That's good. That's actually that's very good. Yes. Yeah, I think that's probably. That's probably the live question. What's the point? So give me those. I'm sorry. I should have written them all down. You said uh, don't care. You said unattached. Yes, good. Unattached. We'll put it right here. Un involved okay anything else yes it almost is um, yeah it's near let's just say near death good no hope <laughs> that's yeah that's that's now getting somewhere. Well, I mean, all these are very, very close. Axity, apathy, distant, near death, you don't care, whatever, unattached, uninvolved, what's the point, which really goes hand in hand with no hope. It's not quite, it's, it's more than laziness. Good. Laziness is like being slothful. That's its own deadly sin. 
But it's especially a deadly sin because you have the potential to do so much better and you know it and you're not willing to. In this, you almost don't know you have the potential to do something more. Right? Anything else come to mind when you hear this? I gave you this chart here, which I know, you know, uh, if you ask some of my colleagues in the Missouri Synod, they would say this is just psychological mumbo-jumbo, which maybe it is, but at least it helps you find your place um, if axity or apathy is your thing. This is Now think about for one second before we look at this, why would people who live a monastic life struggle with this? It can get extraordinarily boring and extraordinarily hopeless. Why? You might not be married. You don't have a family. You're living by yourself in the desert. Um, all you've got are your prayers and the Eucharist, which, by the way, should be enough. But you don't always know that. So you're human, yeah. You desire, as N.T. Wright says in Simply Christian, very few people by nature can live alone. I mean, some people have to for whatever reason, but very few people by nature can live alone. So all these things, um, were very, they were great struggles for monks and the desert mothers. Now, why are they struggles for us? Yes. Good. So look at your sheet here. Apathy, which let's just use that instead of axity, because that's more common to us, but it really is the same thing. Apathy is in the lower left-hand corner. And the way you read this is your emotion or your current state is dictated by the challenges you face. Is the challenge level high or is it low? And also your skill level. So for instance, um, flow up there in the top right, that's the polar opposite, that is just basically energized focus. You have focus for the task. Why is that? The challenge is high, but your skill is very high. Now, where does apathy fall? Challenge is low, and the skill is low. What? Yes, exactly. That's a, actually, that's the thing. It's like laundry. The challenge is low, and if you're me, I said to the vicar when you said we have 105 things of laundry detergent, I said, I honestly don't know how much that costs because I've never bought any. <laughs> For me, laundry, skill is low, challenge is low. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's almost, it's just a little lower than cutting the grass, although cutting the grass gives me great relaxation, so my skill level is higher in that sense. Um, the challenge isn't much higher. It's like putting the dog out. It's like, well, yes, it, it could be. Challenge is low, the skill is low. I agree. So the challenge is a little higher. Keep the line straight. Right. Exactly right. Exactly right. And then what happens? What happens is precisely what happened this morning, which is I said, I don't have any black socks. Abby said, they're in the basket. I said, that basket's been sitting there for like four days. Well, it's all clean. I said, I can't find two socks that match in that basket. I said, I said, what were my exact words? I'm not mad. I just can't find any socks in here. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is indifference. This is apathy. This is axity. This is I don't care. 
Yes, it's your spiritual demon. I know that. And I can tell you, while it's your spiritual demon, I didn't pick this just for you. It happened to pop up this morning. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Yeah, that would move down toward, that would move closer to boredom than it would to apathy. <laughs> That's right. Now, here's the thing. You, you can all find these in your, in your daily life, right? I mean, there are always things like this. There are things like this for me. There are things like this for you. Um, I think it's especially a burden, and I mean this in the best possible way. I think it's especially a burden for moms because there are so many things involved with children, especially young children, that really require very little challenge, like heating up the sweet potatoes, mushing up bananas. I mean, really, monkeys could do that. I don't know. I'm trying to be kind. No. You know exactly what I mean. You say to yourself, why am I doing this? A trained monkey could do this. A trained monkey could take the spoon and put it in her mouth. The skill level is low. The challenge is low. Right? What's that? Yes, exactly. Yes, but see that, and that's actually, did you all hear that? That's the struggle. What she said is glory. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But what kind of God wants me to mash up potatoes, right? So you can find these things. Go ahead, somebody. Yes, you would, yes. There's never an end to this problem. But the point is, you can find this in your daily life. What the problem is, here's the problem. When that affects your daily life, what else does it affect? Your spiritual life, your church life. Why? Because then when one thing or over one thing you become apathetic, then suddenly it's two things, and it's three things, and then it's getting up on Sunday morning, and then it's saying your prayers. Why, you know, why do people get apathetic over saying their prayers? The challenge seems fairly low. Dear God, I want a pony. Dear God, I want a pony. We always get that to the new members. That's not a prayer. The challenge seems low. You ask him for something. The skill level is low. Anybody can do it. But also, you maybe not don't always get the answer you want, or you maybe don't get an answer at all. At least you don't think you do. And so you kind of say, what's the point? Right? Go ahead. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, here's, I mean, here's the, the bottom line. The summary point is to live a life of apathy is really to live at the lowest common denominator. Challenges are very, and I don't mean you don't have things in your life that you have to, you have to do certain things where the challenge is low and the skill is low, but when this begins to affect everything, you're always living at the lowest common denominator, and part of the problem I would propose to you with uh, churches in general, and, and specifically our church over the past 18 months is, Lots of people got to this level, and so what happens? The entire church functions at the lowest common denominator. Okay? And this is, it doesn't mean people were mad or angry or anxious. It just means they kind of thought, what's the point? For whatever reason. Things were okay, what's the point? Things were bad, I can't stop it, what's the point? Right? So we have to emerge from an apathetic life. Why? Because actually the challenge right now is very high. And all of you have skill levels that are very high. Nobody in this room can't do something for Christ in his church. So you have to move from apathy through boredom to relaxation. I actually think if you ask most people today, 
they're at the relaxation point. As far as church is concerned, have you been to church and seen how happy people are? And how people, I get the impression people were like this, you know, 10 months ago. I was thinking it's, you know, November. 12 months ago, November is when everything went bad. But people were like this 12 months ago. And now they're a little more hopeful, a little more happy, but they're still not ready to go full blast and have energized focus. I mean, am I wrong? Is that, that's the impression I get. They're very happy. They're very comfortable. It's, as we often say, it's comfort food right now. But at some point, you have to move beyond relaxation, which is high skill level, low challenge, to see there's a big challenge, and we all have high skill levels. It needs to be flow or energized focus. That makes sense? Yes. I think. Um, Yep, right. Um, it's the example that I gave just a couple minutes ago where I said, have you ever said of your family, things are finally okay again? It doesn't mean you're sort of relaxing, but like you'll hear people say, I'm getting my life under control, or I'm getting the house under control. It's not getting worse. Yes, exactly. You stabilized. You stabilized, right? That is above relaxation because you're working, you're moving, but it's not quite to energize focus because if you're just saying, I got my house under control again, what you're thinking is, I finished the laundry. What you're not thinking is, oh, the laundry is going to come back tomorrow. And energize focus to meet it so that when you meet the laundry again, you're not at apathy, you're at, how can I get through this and do something better? That make sense? So all these, none of these things are bad. I mean, don't read this and say, oh, man, I'm apathetic. That means I'm a horrible person. It just means you've got to move from here to here. And that may go this way. It may go this way. Who knows how it's going to work? But from here to here is where you've got to be. From apathy to energized focus. Or maybe it's from boredom to energized focus or relaxation or whatever it may be. Maybe you're a control person. Maybe you like the status quo. You've got to move from control to energized focus. Okay, because the challenge is great. Um, you know, the cha you could spend 20 minutes talking about the challenge. It's tons of things. Um, it's financial. It's people. It's saying your prayers, reading your Bible. I would also say to you, it's the challenge of culture. One thing, and I'll give you this, and I just want to read you a couple quick paragraphs. I think one thing we've, I think one thing we've lost in all of this, and it's a sadness, is. You remember two years ago, we were studying what in this Bible study? N.T. Wright. We were studying beautiful things, N.T. Wright, Simply Christian, and we were thinking about what? And I know some people didn't like it and some people loved it, but what were we talking about? Simply Christian, the four echoes, beauty, community, spirituality, justice, and we were saying this is the way the culture is going. We've got to engage the culture in order to make disciples and make them stronger. What happened then? We went 12 months and we we were ugly. <laughs> yeah, now, not only were we ugly, but if we didn't just stand still, we actually moved backwards. So I think, again, now, you know, as the Brits would say, it's high time. Now it's high time to re-engage what it means to talk to the culture. Because here's what's happened. We've moved from, you know, this is actually to Sandy's point. This is good. We've moved from chaos 
to control. Now we're getting our house in order, and we've got to move to energized focus, which means what? Not looking at yourselves, but looking at the world, right? So for a long time, and we talk about this every week when we choose music, when we talk about pace, when we talk about sermons, it's moving people from here to here. It's moving them from chaos to comfort food. I mean, I'll be honest with you. We've talked a lot, and this is just so you know, you know, we actually do think about this kind of stuff. Even, even hymns, even what we're going to do for Christmas, all those sorts of things, it's got to be, to a certain extent, comfort food so people feel like they've got control of their lives again. There are some hymns, I'm not going to tell you which ones because you probably, some of you probably love them. There are some hymns I just don't think are worthy of being sung for whatever reason. Usually, you know how you know a bad hymn? It says public domain at the bottom. <laughs> if it's public domain, it means it's not good. No, I'm kidding. But there are some hymns that... Public domain? Yeah, okay. Well, no, it doesn't mean it's a classic. Gregorian chants are not public, public domain. See, now you're jumping to conclusion. You're going back to chaos. You moved us from comfort food back to chaos. Now I'm trying to get us to comfort food. Well, that would be in the chaos category. Okay, here. <laughs> and let me just say something. Now, this is me being serious. This has been the problem with Lutheranism for 500 years. We've been right here. Crabby. No, I'm serious. And, I, and that's a criticism of me just like anybody else. When you ask non-Lutherans, what do you know about Lutherans? Oh, they're good with doctrine. They're very conservative. And sometimes they're just crabby people. It's true. I mean, what do people, what do people know about non-Lutherans, about evangelicals? They're always happy. Now, that's not always true. They're not. But at least on the surface, they try to be. So we've got to move from chaos slash crabby to comfort. You know why? Nobody's going to step foot in the church if we're all crabby. It's not going to happen. Oh, very much so. I completely agree, which is why, which, which is my lead comment. Yeah, which is why I said, even though I don't like them, I'm, getting, I'm actually I'm validating your point here. The church can make people crabby by not giving them comfort food when they need it most. So my point is, there are some hymns I don't think are very good, just like there are some hymns you don't think are very good. Don't think I'm the only one who has opinions around here. <laughs> you all look at me like I'm the only one who's got opinions. You all have opinions too, and I can promise you, Vic, their opinions are stronger than mine. Okay? It's giving people comfort food. So there are some things we sing. There are some things we do. There are some things we don't do because we know it's a time for people to gain control again. However, if you stay here, you're never living to your full potential. So we were here, you got to go here, and now we got to get back to here. And I would at least propose to you that means to re-engage the culture. So I've given you this. This was the cover story um, in September of Christianity Today. And I've told you some of this, the hipster faith stuff, you know, all these, these young people. And believe me, it's got its own set of troubles, just like uh, classic, you know, evangelical Christianity has its own set of troubles. But I think some of this is, is fairly interesting. Um, Look at uh, look at uh, third full paragraph from the bottom of the first page. 
the new subculture of young evangelicals. Notice it's evangelicals, so it's our kind of people. I call them Christian hipsters. Grew up on contemporary Christian music, focus on the family's adventures and odyssey, flannel graphs. Yeah, we can't do flannel graphs anymore. Vacation Bible school, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing, it just means we've got to think about it. And hysteria about the end times. I can remember growing up, every kid was reading what? Left Behind. They had no idea what it meant, but they were all reading it. Why? There was some hysteria over year 2000. I can remember in the year 2000 sitting in a friend's basement waiting for the clock to strike midnight, hoping all the power would go off. <laughs> like, hey, that'd be kind of cool, right? Now, all of that is laughable to them as they attempt to burn away the kitschy dross of megachurch Christianity of their youth with its emphasis on soul winning at the expense of everything else. Now, why is that? Soul winning at the expense of everything else. Soul winning is what? Low common denominator or high? The lowest. You're not a Christian just to stay out of hell. And that was Christianity for years and years and years, and that was Lutheranism. We just want to get you to heaven. I can remember at the end of every service as a kid, the pastor would say, this is a Lutheran church, if you don't know Jesus, come up and pray this simple prayer. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I'm sorry. Jesus, save me. He didn't care a dime what you did the rest of the week or the rest of your life. What he wanted to say was, lots of people were saved here. That's not being Christian. And trade it for something with real-world gravitas. Now, some of this will make your... You know, it'll make your head spin. Look at the second page, and then we'll, be, then we'll be done. I encourage you to read the whole thing, though. These people, top of the page, make sure their churches can check off all the important items on the hipster checklist. Get the church involved in social, social justice and creation care. If we don't talk about, you know, at least to a certain extent, preserving the world and caring for creation, um, you know, there are lots of people who say, well, you don't, you know, you're not really Christian. Show clips from R-rated Coen Brother films. Now, we don't do that during the service, but occasionally for confirmation. Uh, sponsor church outings to microbreweries. We've already done that, so that's good. 20-somethings, 50 of them showed up. That was our biggest 20-somethings event, to the microbrewery. Yes, we can do that, too. Put a worship pastor on stage, decked in clothes from American Apparel. Well, we're maybe not going to do that. Be okay with cussing, <laughs> obviously. Joke. Man, rough crowd. Print bulletins only on recycled cardstock. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, how much paper do we use? Well, let's put it on recycled paper. Good. Use Helvetica font as much as possible from the movie. Leverage technology like Twitter. Lots of people now won't respond to an email, a phone call, certainly not to postal mail, but they will, will respond to what? Facebook or a text, yes. We had a conference down at Wheaton College that said, if you want to get a hold of your members, get all their cell phone numbers and text them. Right? So here's the thing. This doesn't mean what you did in the past was bad. It means what we did in the past needs to be reshaped and re-envisioned, and some of it kept the same toward the future. But all of that begins with each and every one of us, me included, because there are days where I wake up and say, what's the point? I mean, that's just, that's just life. But move from indifference, not caring, hopelessness. I mean, Advent, the color is blue because that's the color of hope. Move through all of that up to flow, energized focus. That is precisely what the desert mothers were trying to get through. And if you don't man the ship, what happens? You hit rocky ground, you get in a bad storm, and that's when, you know, that's when we have chaos like we've had before. So we don't want that. Okay? Any questions? Yes. 
Yep. But that was all to get people yep. to get people in the church. Yep. <laughs> Could be, yeah. I, well, it will be. It will be. The question, yeah. Yes, and here's yes. Good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and you can already see, real honestly, some of that already going away. I mean, it changes, it changes with the moment. The point is, you can't look at uh, what we struggled with before was people wanted answers to their questions before they would join a church. So the church was all about giving people the right answers. If you gave them the right answers, they would join. Today, it's very different. People want to feel like they belong. People want to feel like they have a home. People want to feel like they're no longer alone and no longer unloved. You can't engage that by just saying to them, Jesus died for your sins, John 3.16. You have to engage their loneliness and their deep-seated desires, which are different today than they were before, by engaging them culturally. So what are the cultural things that they need most right now? Here's the thing. Young people feel like they belong when you invite them to a microbrewery. They just do. For whatever reason, right, wrong, or indifferent, they feel like, I mean, I can't tell you. We had one guy who was a complete unbeliever. He came to the catechumen, and I said, why are you here? because I drank a beer with you. That, I mean, that may not have worked 30 years ago. It works today. But the difference is, behind the cultural desires of people today are deep-seated desires for things that are timeless, which is very different from other cultures. The things that they want, the ancient, the grand, the well-tried, the countercultural, that's what people want ultimately. Beauty, community, spirituality, justice, those things are utterly timeless. So the way in which we engage the culture is going to be different today than it will be in 20 years, than it was 20 years ago. But the unique thing about postmodernism, which I don't think is true of every other culture, behind their cultural desires is a deep desire for that which is timeless. And other cultures didn't have that. Contemporary worship is not timeless. The liturgy is timeless. Why did we do contemporary worship 20, 30, 40 years ago? Because we felt like that's what people wanted. Guess what? Their deep-seated desires weren't timeless desires. They just weren't. But today, and this isn't across the board, there are lots of people that don't have these kind of desires. But if you ask people, belonging, that's an eternal desire. It's not good that man should be alone. Right? I mean, community, justice, all those things are from Eden. So you're right. The way we engage in Twitter, Facebook, whatever, that's going to change. But the unique thing about today is their desires, deep-seated desires, are timeless. And we have, we have a very unique opportunity now. This is, there'll never be 20 years like this again for who knows how long, or 30 years, who knows? It's just, this is the time, especially for what Lutheranism has to offer. And, and let me say one more thing. Part of the re, you know why part of the reason why we've struggled as a Lutheran church? Part of the reason is, why are Catholic seminaries booming and evangelical seminaries booming? Because they both have a brand, they both have an identity. Catholics have gone back to the very ancient church, Latin Mass, Evangelicals have gone back to solid Bible teaching and dynamic pastors. You can pick what you want, but they have a brand. The problem with Lutheranism in the seminaries, we don't have a brand. We don't know what we are. 
We do everything and ev anything and everything because we want to appease everybody. We actually need to have a brand and say, this is who we are, and we want to have you here, but we realize it's not for everybody. That's the difference. That's why other places are flourishing. Yeah. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. Right. 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 just yeah it's just it's not the end yeah okay sorry we went 10 minutes over let's pray and uh, we'll get going Lord remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay.